This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading for this morning is Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, and it can be found on page 1040 in the Black Pew Bibles. Revelation 19, starting in verse 1. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. All right, this is easy. Good morning. This is going to be a fun day. Hey, my name is Andrew. I am one of the pastors here. I was doing yard work on Friday, and then my face blew up like a tomato, and I am heavily under the influence of Benadryl right now. So we're going to do Revelation 19, Benadrilled. And I'm really looking forward to it. So hey, let's... uh, Let's pray, because there is a lot going on in this passage, and we should probably ask God for help. Um, if you want to pray for me, that my face doesn't grow anymore, um, and that I can focus, I would love that. So let's pray. Um, God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are kind enough to reveal yourself. We want to see Jesus. We want to know Jesus. Uh, even in vivid, strange passages like this that are hard to wrap our minds around that leave us with so many questions. Uh, We believe that you are good. Everything that you have to say is good, that your word is powerful and effective. Uh, and And God, I pray that you would speak clearly, that you would push back darkness, even as we read about the ultimate fall and defeat of evil in these verses, uh, will you do that work right now? Will you push back darkness? Will you defeat evil? Will you bring righteousness and justice and flourishing to this world? Because we need it and we need you. 
Uh, so Lord, will you come and speak? I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, if this uh, is your second week back with us, if you visited us, us on Easter and decided to come back, welcome back. Uh, we are really glad that you are here. We're finishing out this series called Jesus is Fill in the Blank. Uh, and this is the last week in our series. We're going to be talking about the fact uh, that Jesus is not just risen, which is what we celebrated on Easter. Jesus is coming back again to fully, finally establish his kingdom on the earth. A couple things that you should know about us out as a church is we want to know Jesus. We want to see him as he actually is. We want to follow him. We want to um, experience more of him, grow to look and act and think more like him. And we think that this book is a reliable guide in telling us who Jesus is, showing us what he's like and showing us how we should live in response to the reality of who Jesus is. So we preach from the Bible every single week. We let it challenge us and shape us and we do do not avoid passages in the Bible that make us squirm, like this one. Um, the crazy thing about Jesus is everyone is fascinated by him, right? There have been more books written about Jesus than any other figure in human history, uh, and there is enough material in the Bible for us to kind of be able to pick and choose uh, which Jesus we like, right? What do I mean by that? Um, think about in the Gospels where you see all of these kind, tender pictures of Jesus showing up uh, with care and compassion, drawing children to him, uh, showing love and mercy and compassion to the outcasts in society. Uh, we love that Jesus, right? Uh, we want more of that Jesus who invites us to come to him and lay down his burdens. We also see pictures of Jesus where he is flipping over temples and making whips and driving people um, out and uh, causing scenes. Uh, Jesus is both that compassionate, kind, tender one, and Jesus is really fierce, and some of us are drawn more towards uh, one of those uh, than the other. Uh, some of us can feel uncomfortable with a touchy-feely, compassionate Jesus. We like the big, strong Jesus. Others of us um, don't feel at home when we see Jesus described in really strong, powerful terms. We want the compassionate, kind, tender Jesus. The reality is Jesus isn't split. He is all of those things. He is kind, he is compassionate, he is tender, and he is fierce and wild. And he is coming to judge the world again, which is why we're trying to hold all of these things together so we can see, hey, this is who Jesus is. So last week we celebrated this bedrock reality of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ died. Three days later, he rose again from the dead through his death and resurrection. He has defeated sin, overthrown death, made a way to save people out of death and into his kingdom. And this week we are celebrating the fact uh, that resurrection is not just a kind of spiritual metaphor for how to live a more fulfilled life. The resurrection of Jesus points to a day when he will fully establish his kingdom on earth, push back darkness and do away with evil forever. If you want a kind of big idea of what Revelation 19 is about, and if you're looking for a source of hope, something to hope in, here it is. One day, Jesus will return to save his people and destroy evil forever. One day, 
Jesus will return, history will end, and he will do away with evil and injustice forever. And Revelation 19 gives us a picture of what that will look like when it happens. Uh, And it's a vivid picture, right? I probably was not the only one who squirmed and felt a little bit uncomfortable uh, when I heard those verses read. I saw a few months ago that I was scheduled to preach on the return of Jesus, and I got pretty excited. I was like, cool, I'm probably going to be able to preach out of Revelation 21, you know, new heavens and new earth. Uh, look, look over at Revelation 21. This is what I thought I was going to be able to preach. I was pumped. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And I opened my Bible. I said, Revelation 19, wait, what is that? Um, oh, I don't get he'll wipe away every tear. I get birds eating everybody. <laughs> Here's the deal, though. You don't get the beauty, the glory, the comfort of Revelation 21 and 22 without Jesus coming back in Revelation 19 and doing away with evil forever. Because you can't have ultimate peace and comfort and flourishing if there's still evil, sin, death, and chaos in the world. And Revelation 19 is what happens when Jesus comes back to finally, fully deal with evil forever. God takes evil really seriously. So seriously that he is committed to doing something about it and bringing it to an end forever. So there are a hundred questions that we could probably talk about from this passage. Who the heck is the beast? Who the heck is the false prophet? I'm not going to touch any of that because I don't have time and I'm not sure. Um, What we can do is take a big picture look at this um, and see the way that Jesus is revealed to us in this passage. We're going to look at the way Jesus defeats evil finally forever And then we're going to look at the way that we ought to live and respond if Jesus actually is coming back to do something about evil. So we're going to look at the way Jesus is revealed, the way he overthrows and defeats evil, and the way that we respond to the return of Jesus. So let's first uh, spend some time in the first few verses of this passage looking at the way Jesus is revealed. You can break up Revelation 19 into kind of two main sections. The first is verses 11 through 13. It gives us a portrait of Jesus on the day that he returns. We preached through Revelation a few years ago. If you weren't with us or need a refresher, um, you can either go back and listen to some of those sermons. But here are a few things to keep in mind when approaching the book of Revelation. Uh, The Revelation was written by the apostle John. 
uh, a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The word revelation just means uh, an unveiling or a revealing of something. Think about it in this way. The NFL draft is going to be happening in Kansas City in a few weeks. I drove past Union Station earlier this week. It's crazy what they're doing down there. Uh, On draft night, Roger Goodell is going to walk out on the stage. He's going to have an envelope with him and he's going to say, pick 31, the Kansas City Chiefs select, you know, X, whoever, whoever player. When he says that, that is the revelation of the player that the Chiefs are going to pick. So revelation, we are uh, a lot of times trained to think of it as a roadmap of the end of the world or looking for signs so we can make sense of, hey, is Jesus going to come back then? That's not the main point of revelation. The main point of revelation is to open the envelope, pull back the court curtain and show us who Jesus is. It is the revelation about Jesus. It is the revelation of what Jesus is doing in the world. It is the revelation of the ways that evil darkness conflict with the kingdom of God and with the people of God and how we as Christians are supposed to live in a world that is still dark and chaotic waiting for the return of Jesus. And Revelation has a few uh, big picture messages. One, Jesus has already won. Number two, if you are in him, you have already won. Number three, how do you uh, realize that victory? You hold fast to the word of God and you worship the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That's the big picture of Revelation. God is one, you have one. Hold fast by holding fast to the word of God and by worshiping this God. And so Revelation is vivid. It's supposed to engage our imaginations. It's not um, a law textbook that is explaining something technically. It's painting pictures. It's trying to get you to feel things inside of your heart inside of your body. And that's what John is doing by painting this portrait of Jesus for us. Look down your Bibles uh, at verse 11. Then I, this is John speaking, saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. That picture of a white horse is significant because it's a symbol of victory. John is saying the battle has already been won, even though the battle hasn't actually happened yet. In ancient Rome, whenever Rome would go out to do war with one of their enemies, they would defeat them, and then they would come back home to their cities, and Caesar and all of his captains would ride through the city on white horses, proclaiming, hey, Rome is victorious, our enemies are overthrown and defeated, and our kingdom is unstoppable and spreading throughout all the world. So when John sees this picture of heaven opened in a white horse, it's saying something. It's saying, hey, this is not someone who um, is uncertain about what's going to happen. This is a victor. This guy has already won the battle. The battle, even though it hasn't happened yet, is already over. And although he's not explicitly named, it's obvious that the one sitting on the horse is Jesus. John gives us seven descriptors or characteristics of who he is. The first one is that the one sitting on this horse is called faithful and true. Throughout the book of Revelation, you see Jesus described as the faithful and true one. In a world that is marked by unfaithfulness, that is marked by deception, where it's hard to tell what's real, uh, what's going on, Jesus is the one who is always faithful and true. He is the only one in a long history of human failure who has been able to completely faithfully follow God. He's the one who reveals to us truly what God is like. And so you see this one um, who has already done all the work. He's faithful 
to the purposes of God. He's going to accomplish everything God has set out for him to do, and he is the one who truly shows us what God is like. Secondly, we see that in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So we live in a world where justice, it seems like, does not always have the final say. Whether that's in high-profile court cases that we see on uh, CNN, or maybe that's just things in your own life where you've experienced something and you never got justice for it. Whether that's something big or something small, we live in a world where justice is miscarried all the time. And yet, this one is coming with righteous ability to bring true judgment and righteous ability to go to war and not go to war in the way that Rome went to war or empires in the world have always gone to war that leaves innocent people homeless uh, or dead. he, He goes to war in righteousness. He knows the enemy and he knows how to save his people and defeat evil. He judges and makes war in complete righteousness. Third, his eyes are like flames of fire. He's able to see and discern everything clearly. Jesus isn't confused by complexity or nuance. He's the only one who can see and judge with complete righteousness and justice. And nothing is hidden from him. He's the one who sees everything. He's the one who knows the way everything actually is. Fourth, on his head, it said it, uh, there are many diadems. What is a diadem? A diadem is a crown. There are two types of crowns that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. One of them is like one of those Olympic wreaths, you know, that uh, victors, if you, if you won uh, the event, you get to wear a wreath on your head, uh, crowned you for an achievement. Uh, that's not the crown that is being talked about here. A few people wear that in Revelation. Uh, the church gets to wear uh, one of those. A diadem is uh, a ruler's crown. It's, it's a king's crown. And the people that you see wearing diadems in Revelation uh, are people like the, the beast, whoever that is. It's a false claim to ultimate authority. So there are people throughout human history who will claim, hey, uh, I have ultimate authority, or we have ultimate authority, or we are ultimately in charge uh, about what's going on. Jesus shows up with every diadem on his head, which means that he is the true king. He is the one who possesses ultimate authority. In a world of pretenders and false rulers, Jesus rules over everything and will throw down anything or anyone who stands against him. Fifth, it says he has a name that no one knows. It's a, it's a secret name no one knows but himself, which is kind of confusing to us, right? Because we're like, so what? Um, that's kind of weird. In the ancient world, names were really, really important. They were really significant. They told you about the identity of someone. Uh, And a lot of people believed that everything has uh, a secret name that reveals the true essence of a thing, right? Uh, So you might, my name is Andrew, but in this uh, kind of ancient way of thinking, I would have like a actual real name that identified the true essence of what it means to be Andrew, 
Got it? Cool. Crystal clear. What, uh, and uh, the way that a person would gain power over a thing or another person is by knowing their true name. If you can grasp the essence of something or someone, then you can have power over it. And so Jesus has a name that nobody knows other than himself. What does that mean? No one can have power over him. No one can defeat him. No one can truly, fully get one over him because they actually know who he is. So when you see uh, in the Gospels, uh, Jesus going around and demons like kind of crying out and saying, hey, we know who you are uh, or you know, tell, us, tell us who you are. They're trying to get power over him. They're trying to get control over him. Jesus is uncontrollable. He stands totally secure in who he is. Nothing and no one can touch his essence. So that's one aspect of what it means that he has a name that no one knows. Another one um, is there's more to know and explore about Jesus than we could ever know right here on earth. He's bigger than we can grasp and comprehend. One day when he comes back, we are going to see him revealed as he actually is in ways that we, it's impossible for us to get at right now. So when Jesus returns, he is showing us that he is ultimately in charge, that he faces no rivals, he stands totally secure, and he's actually going to reveal the essence of who he is to us. He's going to show his church, his saints, um, who he is and draw us closer into him. Number six, his robes are dipped in blood, uh, which is a kind of vivid, violent picture. And it can mean a couple things. People, people debate, hey, is this a reference to the cross and the blood of Jesus? Uh, Jesus is coming back in the authority that he has won through the cross, bringing the redemption that he purchased through the cross. Uh, is it that or is it uh, the blood of his enemies because he's about to go and trample the winepress of the wrath of God uh, and get blood all over him? I think that this is, this is talking about um, his blood uh, that he shed on the cross uh, because he hasn't gone out and trampled the wine press yet. Uh, yet. When Jesus comes, he'll come with redemption on his robes. He's coming, bringing a victory and bringing forgiveness that he already secured on the cross. Either way, it's a sign of victory that he and he alone has won. Seventh, Jesus is called the word of God. He's clothed in a robe dripped in in blood, name by which he's uh, called is the word of God. Um, Everyone wants to know what God is like. And there are a million different ideas of what God is like and who God is. Uh, Throughout human history, we've been trying to pinpoint, talk about who God is. And Jesus shows us exactly who God is. That's what it means for him to be the word of God. Jesus is the faithful and true representation of what God is like. Do you want to see God? Do you want to know what God is like? Then look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. Um, And in this context, Jesus is coming, pronouncing the judgment of God uh, over his enemies. And this is, this is what's crazy. This is what's fascinating. We'll talk about this a little more in a couple minutes. Um, there's, in, this, in this passage, there's this 
build up. There's this anticipation of a battle that's going to happen. And the battle never happens because Jesus simply speaks a word and everything is done. Look at uh, verse 21. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The way that Jesus overcomes is by speaking. It is with his word. One day he'll come back and speak a word that will put everything right again. He doesn't need to go to war with tanks or guns. All he has to do is speak and his word is powerful and effective enough to make everything right again. Here's a little side note on that. Um, Jesus is the word of God. He's revealed to us the word of God. The word of God is hugely significant all throughout the Bible. And so what we're doing when we gather together here, when we preach sermons, what you guys do when you are studying your Bible or speaking about the Bible uh, to, with each other, whether that's like a class like One Big Story or if that's in a group of friends, uh, we aren't just getting more information, because somehow the word of God has power to affect and change things. Jesus authoritatively speaks and things change. And so when we're preaching uh, sermons, we're not, we're not just trying to like give some kind of inspiration. We're not just trying to um, you know, bring some new truth that we, that we haven't learned before. We're actually participating in the victory of God over darkness. And in some way, we're pushing back darkness by be- proclaiming, hey, this is the reality of who God is. This is what he has to say. This is who he is. And that's the way that the world changes. That's the way that people change. The word of God is like a sword that pierces and cuts through things. One day he'll speak and everything will be made right. And until then, we keep on trying to speak and see as best as we can what God has to say because the word of God is powerful. So you put together all these images, uh, this one sitting on a horse, faithful, true, completely righteous, just, dip, robes dipped in blood. You see this picture of a king who is completely, utterly, fully good, fully aligned with who God is, and fully committed to doing away with evil forever. That's how Jesus is portrayed. That's the way that we see him. So now let's look at the way that Jesus defeats evil. Look with me down at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. They're participating in the victory also, but they don't have to do anything. They just show up. Uh, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Again, you, there's that picture of um, the word of God, him speaking and affecting victory. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That's a reference to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, you see a picture of God's chosen king who is going to rule over his people forever. Um, and Psalm 2 also shows us uh, the reality that the world is in active rebellion to God. There is a such a thing as evil 
in the world. And it is opposed to God. What does God do in Psalm 2? He sees the nations raging. He sees wars happening. And he laughs. Not because he doesn't care, but because it has no power to threaten his rule. He is completely secure. And he has ultimate right to rule. And he will. But Psalm 2 also ends by calling, hey, everyone, God is going to rule the nations. He is going to completely strike down evil forever. You should take refuge in him. You should run to him. Because he's not just a ruler with a rod of iron. He is a shepherd who shepherds and saves his people and brings them close to him. So you should do that too. That's Psalm 2. That's what, uh, that's what we see in verse um, 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's a reference to Isaiah 63. We uh, preached on that last year. If you want to go uh, listen to that sermon, it's on our website. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So throughout the Old Testament, there's this expectation that God is one day going to come back, defeat all of his enemies, pour out his wrath upon all sin and evil in the world. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. Um, and, and the way that Jesus does it is instantaneously. Every, everyone, uh, it, when they're writing about this passage, talks about how anticlimactic this chapter is. Because not even uh, just in these verses, there's building tension about, oh man, there's a conflict coming. In the entire book of Revelation, all uh, 18 chapters up to this point, there is building tension and conflict. What is God going to do about all of these um, forces and sources of evil that are really real and are really in the world and are really doing real harm and damage? And so it builds up to this point where Jesus is finally going to go out to war and do something about it. And it's over before it starts. He just speaks a word and everything is done. He opens his mouth and everything is over. Evil is totally defeated along with all evildoers. Look at verses 17 through 18. That I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead and said, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Um, which is really comprehensive. John is saying that no one is exempted from this. Anyone who refuses to submit to Jesus is destroyed and sent to hell under a curse, uh, which, is what, which is what the birds are all about. Um, the ultimate kind of source of shame in the ancient world uh, and a sign that you were under a curse is that when you die, you aren't buried, but you're eaten by birds, which is harsh, right? And that's really difficult for us to come to terms with because there's not um, anyone who's exempted from this righteous judgment. And so um, I think it's good that we stop here just for a minute and acknowledge the real difficulty that we all have with the idea of the wrath of God. Because again, all throughout the Bible, you see God is love. It's First John 4. Um, how does God talk about himself, reveal himself? Well, he's love. 
in, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, 6, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. So everyone loves that God, right? We all want that God who is overwhelmingly patient, who shows steadfast love for thousands of generations, who is himself God. And then we run into these um, vivid pictures of God exercising his wrath. And we're like, how does that fit? How does that square? And I, I've talked about Miroslav Volf before a couple times. Um, Miroslav Volf, I think, is the most helpful person that I've read that has helped me grapple with that question, how do you make sense of the wrath of God? Uh, Miroslav Volf grew up, uh, he's a theologian, uh, grew up in Croatia, uh, former Yugoslavia. And he talks about um, the fact that when he was young, uh, he, he really struggled with the idea of a God who is wrathful. He's like, I, I thought it was embarrassing. I didn't think that was befitting of everything else that uh, I knew about God. And then civil war broke out uh, in, in his country and he saw his family, uh, his friends, his community just completely devastated and leveled by war. Uh, genocide happened. There were innocent people who suffered and died. And when he was writing about that, um, and wrestling with that, he said, that's when I realized that the wrath of God is actually good news and that uh, I couldn't maybe follow a God who wasn't wrathful. Let me just read what he said. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, when I saw my villages, my family, my people killed and destroyed, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God is not wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. What does it mean to love something or someone? You are fiercely protective of them. We have this idea that love is a kind of warm and fuzzy feeling where we just kind of um, live and let be uh, every, everyone else. That's, that's not love, biblically. God's love is fierce, holy, protective commitment to the good of his creation and to the good of every person who is made. And so when God sees the evil that's done in the world, he's angry and he's rightfully angry. You're also angry when you see another school shooting. God is not indifferent to that. God is not up in heaven twiddling his thumbs saying, man, I really hope they can figure that out. God is totally, completely committed to bringing a kind of justice that humans are incapable of giving. But if that statement is true, then that leaves us with a big problem because where do you draw the line? Like what evil is big enough and bad enough to merit the wrath of God? But then what about the other smaller things that we do to each other every day? the ways that we don't keep our word or the ways that we are selfish or the ways that we use other people. What's God going to do about that? Fleming Rutledge, uh, 
another theologian, she, uh, she wrote this. She said, justice for everyone is an alarming thought because it raises the possibility that it might come upon me also. As the author of Ephesians put it, by nature, we are all children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's Ephesians 2, verse 3. So when Jesus returns, we see him returning to make everything right again, to bring the perfect justice that we are incapable of bringing. But he hasn't come back yet. Why? Well, it's because God is patiently always holding out his hands, asking people to return to him, come back to me, be changed, be covered by the blood of the cross, be covered by the blood of Jesus, become new, become part of my family and my new creation. And even in Revelation, all of these people, this comprehensive list of people, multiple times throughout the book of Revelation, we see these are the ones who have refused that offer over and over and over and over again. God speaks to them. He sends people to say, hey, repent, come back. And they won't over and over and over again. And eventually time runs out and God comes to make and put everything right again. When Jesus returns, it means the final end of the kingdom of darkness. He will, with perfect righteous judgment, bring all of the world in conformity to him and establish the kingdom of light that we see in Revelation 21 and 22. So the message is, hey, run, run back to him. Return to him because he is good. He does delight to show steadfast mercy and compassion. Come to him. So if Jesus is coming again, if he is the totally unconquered, victorious king of the universe, if he comes to defeat all of evil forever, if he does that just with a word, uh, then what difference does that make now while we're living in this world where evil still does uh, run rampant and we still are waiting for the kingdom of God to be fully, finally established how do we live as we wait for his return? Um, man, this is really interesting. As I was thinking about it this week, um, I don't think the church, that's a big statement, right? The church, what is the church? Uh, in my experience, we don't talk about the return of Jesus as much as uh, we did when I was a kid or growing up. Maybe you're like me. You grew up in a church that was talking about the end of the world and the rapture uh, and God's judgment like all the time, uh, all the time. Uh, the 1900s, uh, the church in America did focus a ton on, hey, God is coming, God is coming, God, God is coming. And I think people in my generation kind of got uh, tired of that. We got tired of getting scared uh, by, you know, hey, the rapture might be right around the corner. And so we've kind of like uh, drifted to other topics and are much more interested in talking about, hey, well, how should we live now as Christians in the world before Jesus has come back, which is a great question. Um, what we see in the Bible is that the return of Jesus has tremendous implications on the way that we live right now. The return of Jesus is not some abstract thing that we're just kind of like, all right, well, I guess that'll happen one day and uh, I'll just kind of do my thing until then. It actually makes demands on the way that you live right now. And it gives you real hope that you can hold on to when things get really hard. 
I was listening to uh, uh, the radio uh, earlier this week. They were doing an interview with a New Testament scholar, uh, I think from North Carolina. And he was talking about how much he can't stand Revelation because it's like, it's so violent. It's, and it's, it, it, it inspires violence. It has no real practical effect for the way that we um, live today. And I was just like, man, I think you're really wrong. Uh, because the, the return of Jesus and everything that we see uh, in Revelation there's never a call for the church or for Christians to go and pick up a sword or go and pick up a gun and try to bring the kingdom of God. Um, instead, the New Testament says that the return of Jesus should make us more loving, compassionate, patient, hopeful, and forgiving. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, just uh, a couple of those. How does the return of Jesus and the fact that he's coming again one day make us more patient? Turn over to James 5. Verse seven. Uh, it's just a little bit to your left. It's on page 1013 in my Bible. So it should be on page 1013 in the Pew Bible. Uh, James five, it's an early letter uh, to the churches, uh, potentially written by James, the half brother of Jesus. And he concludes his book in chapter five uh, by saying this, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So for James, there is a really strong connection between the fact that Jesus is returning someday and the fact that we ought to patiently devote ourselves to loving one another and following the Lord in whatever context we find ourselves. Why? As a Christian, you are a recipient of the patience of God. The fact that God hasn't come back yet, the fact that uh, we're talking about Revelation 19 and haven't experienced yet is, be, is because God is patient. Peter says that in 2 Peter. You don't have to turn over there. Um, but in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, he, he, he says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why has Jesus not returned yet? Well, it's because he is patient with sinners. He's patient with people like you and me. And he would much rather have someone return to him and become part of his family than to exercise and pour out wrath and judgment. God is overwhelmingly patient. And so if I'm a person who is a sinner, and if I've done bad things to other people, which I have, and I am, that means God has been patient with me, and that means God is not done working with and in me, so then I can be patient with other people who maybe annoy me, or I don't see many signs of change going on with them. If God can be patient with me, then surely I can be patient with that person. The return of Jesus makes us more patient and helps us to say, all right, God will take care of this. All I have to do is love and keep working to follow him in my everyday life. The return of Jesus also gives us hope. 
Because if Jesus is coming back, and if he's gonna make all things new, if he's gonna do away with darkness and evil forever, that means that history is going somewhere. That means that the end of the world is not chaos or darkness. It means it's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light being established here on earth. I was texting with a friend earlier this week uh, kind of about this passage because I was like, hey, this is a doozy. Can you give me any insight and pray for me? Um, And he texted me this back, uh, and I'm just going to read it because he said it better than I could. Um, He said, I wonder how many people feel a general fear that we're on the verge of war or recession, greater polarization. We're afraid for our kids' safeties in schools. And this vision of Jesus is a comfort that he's not going to simply pat us on our heads at the end and say, well, you did your best. There's great reassurance that he will judge the earth. If no one is coming to put things ultimately right, then we should just fill up our storehouses, batter down the hatches, because evil will prevail someday soon. But if Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent ultimately, then true injustice will not be left with a minor infraction. He will do the most righteous thing and put it all under his righteous wrath. Whatever you have going on and facing you in your life, you do have hope that the end of history is defined by Jesus. That school shootings or war or crashing economies do not have the final say. In the end, Jesus comes, does away with it forever, and somehow makes everything right again. So the return of Jesus makes us patient, makes us hopeful. Finally, the return of Jesus makes us forgiving. It gives us the ability to forgive our enemies. Because if you are a Christian, you are a forgiven person. Revelation 19 is not just about those people out there who are different than us. Revelation 19 is about, like, me. Like, I'm the, I, I'm the one who did not um, honor God. I'm the one who has hurt other people. I'm the one who is in need of grace. And praise God, he's given that to me on the cross. So if he's forgiven me of everything, then surely I can forgive other people who have hurt me or wronged me. I don't have to get back or get even with them because one day God will fully bring justice. Re, uh, um, turn over to Romans 12. It's the last time I'm going to make you turn somewhere else. Romans 12 is kind of towards the end of the book of Romans. Paul is giving a lot of different commands on how we ought to live as the redeemed people of God. And he says, he says this, uh, repay no one evil for evil. This is uh, Romans 12, verse 17. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, that means do everything that you can do. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That's what Revelation 19 is about. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you catch that? You do not have to avenge yourself. 
because you have a father who is going to avenge everything. And he'll do that either through his wrath and justice or by forgiving and saving the person who wronged you. And both will be right and good. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you should feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the only way that you can do that is if Jesus is who he says he is and if he is going to do what he says he's going to do in Revelation 19, destroying evil, expelling it from the world, from creation forever, and finally fully establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You can repay meanness with kindness. You can love your enemies because you have been loved by God. You are loved by God. You are forgiven by God. And you serve a God who will one day put everything right again. So what do we do? We take refuge in him. We run to him. We say, hey, Jesus, you are the one who possesses all authority. You are the one who is going to return and put everything right again. Um, I, I believe that. Help me to be found in you. Help me to be covered by the blood of your cross. Because the, 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 the crazy thing about Revelation 19 is the battle doesn't happen. We already talked about that. The battle doesn't happen in Revelation 19. The battle was won on the cross of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Jesus overcomes sin and evil, first of all, by shedding his own blood. And first of all, by absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus takes it, he breaks the power of sin and evil, and he brings us into a new kingdom that is paid for by his death and sealed with his resurrection. So until then, we run to him over and over and over again. If you're a Christian, you run to him over and over and over again. If you are not a Christian, man, um, be sobered by this. Like this, this could be, um, you know, this, this could be not, not be true, right? You could choose to say, I just don't think that that's the way that the world is. But what if it is? What if Jesus is actually who he says he is and one day he will actually come to gather everyone to himself and bring his justice to the world. Where are you going to stand when that happens? He wants you to come to him. So please come to him. Um, if you are not a Christian, like we're so glad that you're here. Uh, keep on, keep on coming back. We have prayers in the back of your uh, back of the pew that can help you wrestle with who God is. We're also going to have um, people as we shut the service down uh, right over here under the window who would love to pray with and for you. Um, so do that. Don't leave here without doing some kind of business with God. Uh, for the rest of us, uh, in, 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 uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul says that when we take communion, we're proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes again. Uh, so every single week, we end by taking communion. When we take communion, we look back to the cross of Jesus Christ and we remembered, oh, my forgiveness is here. I receive grace at the cross. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ is my hope. It is the only thing that I have to stand on. And it is the thing that is and will make the world right again. And so when we take it, we look back to that. And we also look forward to the day he's coming again. And he's going to gather all of us to him. 
And he's going to bring that Revelation 21 and 22 beauty and flourishing to the world. And we get to be part of it. Not because of anything that we have done, but because we're blood-bought sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And so we end every service uh, with communion. If you're a Christian, I would love to invite you to come forward and participate in the Lord's Supper. The way that we practice communion here at Redeemer is we will have uh, four stations. We'll have one up in the balcony uh, that is going to be bread, wine, and juice. We will have two bread, wine, and juice stations down here on the floor. And then we'll also have a gluten-free single-serve station right off to the side. Uh, The stoneware uh, cup is wine. The glass is juice. You'll come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, uh, dip it in the cup, and... um, uh, then return to your seat. If you're not a Christian, uh, I'm so glad you're here. Spend the next few minutes uh, praying, reflecting, ask God to reveal himself to you. And if you're anyone in here who is in need of prayer, um, we would love to pray for you, whether that's the prayer team, uh, one of the pastors, or just a person next in the pew next to you. I guarantee they would love to pray for you. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to uh, pray, I'm, and the band can come back up, and communion servers. Uh, and then when I am done praying, you guys can come forward and uh, take the Lord's Supper when you're ready. So So will you you pray with me? God, thank you. Uh, Thank you that you speak truth to us. Thank you that uh, we aren't hopeless or helpless uh, and that you are actually going to do something about the evil that we experience in the world. God, you already have. You've already, you've already defeated sin and death and evil on the cross. Um, and, and one day, God, you're going to return and totally do away with it forever. Uh, and so, so God, we, we pray, come quickly. Uh, Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. Uh, we want to see your will be done in earth as in heaven. We don't want to just keep stumbling around and um, failing and falling all the time. We, we want to see you and we want to know you fully. So uh, Jesus, Holy Spirit, will you come quickly? Uh, And until then, will you give us the grace that we need to live as your children in this world? Thank you, God. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.